Let's stand together at this time. We're going to be looking in Proverbs chapter 4, a message I call with all diligence. I'll begin this message this week, and then we have another message, at least one more, uh, that I will bring you from Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. Keep your heart, the Bible says, with all diligence, <clears throat> for out of it spring the issues of life. Keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it spring the issues of life. And may God bless the reading of his word today as my prayer. You may be seated. We've been preaching a series through the book of Proverbs, specifically the first nine chapters. If you read through them, you'll see that there are, the first nine chapters are more uh, discourses, various teachings that he was making, a general subject of wisdom and how that wisdom promotes human happiness and holiness, how you're just better off and happier if you live according to the wisdom of God. That's been the theme of these first nine chapters. If you'll read along, not right now, but later on, you'll see that after chapter nine, things change. And you have a lot of short, one word, basically disconnected statements of wisdom collected under the wisdom of Proverbs, what we usually think of when we think of a proverb, like the early bird gets the worm or something like that. Uh, a proverb, short statement, uh, doesn't re relate really to anything else. But in these first nine chapters, there were some discourses, and I've tried to bring you some messages on them. Uh, I have these other two, as this morning we're going to go to what I call the heart of the matter. Uh, keep your heart with all diligence. I preached on this uh, at Bud Creek Camp a few years ago, a couple of years ago. Uh, if you look on our website, if you want to hear all four sermons, they're still on there. Uh, what I'm preaching this morning and will preach next week is, is really not the same as those two uh, or those four, but uh, uh, they will discuss issues relating to the heart and the human heart as they are presented by Solomon. In almost 80 verses, Solomon brought up the subject of the human heart. And right up front, we're giving this vital passage in fact, one uh, translation has it, above all else, above all else, keep your heart, keep your heart above all else. Give all diligence, certainly, to keep or to guard your heart for a very important reason, because out of the heart are the issues of life. This passage, as we see throughout the scripture, presents the heart as the subject or the object of the human will. We tend to think of the heart as being uh, emotions, a place where emotions come from. But uh, biblically, the heart was the center of the will. And if you're thinking about that blood pumping muscle in the middle of our chest, uh, that's not what the Bible is describing. Uh, certainly, we are fearfully, wonderfully made. And aren't you glad that God could build a pump that lasts a lifetime? <laughs> I, I kind of like that. Uh, anything goes wrong with that pump, that muscle, uh, you'll know it real quick. I promise you that. And it certainly gets our attention. Uh, but uh, it is the center of the will. And it is our spiritual heart, not our physical heart, that is under discussion. The place where we make decisions that determine the direction of our life. We also have Proverbs 23 and 7, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. 
And one of the reasons then why that we need to consider this is because the Bible tells us about the vital nature of our spiritual heart. It can be more serious. Uh, what you think in your heart, you'll be. The new Christians may say, may say that you are what you eat, but the Bible says you are what you think. You are what you think. Keep your heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life, the center of the will. This morning we're going to talk about this uh, in detail because, at least partially, of the resurgence in modern times of a doctrine known as Calvinism. Uh, oftentimes it is referred to as simply being reformed these days, uh, being reformed. When you hear somebody talk about that and say, I'm reformed, uh, what they're saying is that they're a follower uh, to one degree or another of uh, the system that was known as Calvinism. Uh, we might not think that reformed doctrine has much of an impact on our world, but it is growing exponentially in the evangelical world right now. It has dominated many seminaries. Uh, and not just seminaries. The annual Reform Pastors Conference has gone on for many years called Together for the Gospel uh, was sponsored by not only a lot of seminaries, but by Lifeway Publications. It publishes a lot of literature that we use. If you've been on the college campus for the last few years, or if you're on one right now, I promise you, you are running into Calvinism and running into it quite a bit. And though they call themselves reformed and talk about all those things, uh, really one of the big issues that you're going to hear about is the issues that relate to the human will. I listened to a sermon preached just a short while ago at the Shepherds Conference at John MacArthur's church, and the speaker said very frankly that free will is a myth, like the Loch Ness Monster or the abominable snowman, quote, unquote, free will is a myth. But in their view, you see the heart of man or the will of humanity is so corrupted by sin and depravity as to be under the complete control of it. And in that state of spiritual deadness, mankind is left unable to respond to God or to choose anything that is good or godly at all. I want to be very clear. Uh, this doctrine is known as the doctrine of total depravity, and we believe it. We believe that. Not the way they do, but we do believe in total depravity. We do not believe that mankind is only partially depraved. That's the thinking of another theological system. We won't go there this morning. But we do accept that man is hopelessly marred by sin, and in that state, he is unable within anything of himself to accomplish anything that would result in his own salvation. To put it simply, we aren't just lost. We are hopelessly lost. Left to ourselves, by our own human power, we would not come to God. The Bible says that the heart is desperately wicked. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The Bible says in Romans 3.11 and quotes this from other passages, there is none who seeks after God. But Reformed thinking, declaring that the human will is a myth, leaves them proposing that God has already done all the choosing that there is to be done. 
To the Reformed, God chose some people before the world began. They call them the elect. God does this, uh, did this choosing sovereignly. That is, uh, mankind had nothing whatsoever to do with it. Uh, so that some then are regenerated by God, and because God then chooses to regenerate them, they then respond in faith. They believe, but only because God had already regenerated them. Some go so far as to say that God also sovereignly chose before the creation that some would be lost. It's known within the theory as double predestination. Most Reformed thinkers these days believe that Jesus only died for the elect in what is called a limited atonement, but not all Reformed thinkers believe in a limited atonement, and not all believe in double predestination. However, all Reformed thinkers these days will say that only the elect chosen by God from eternity will ever be saved. This is where the thinking on the will comes into play. Seeing humanity then hopelessly depraved, seeing their hearts totally dominated and controlled by sin, seeing them that they cannot respond to God at all and be saved, to them God must regenerate them. He does so. He does so because he chose them. And he chose them before the foundation of the world. And therefore it is only them who can believe and be saved. They don't all believe that God predestined or predetermined that some would be lost. Some prefer to say that God just leaves man alone in his sin and depravity. And while they can make that sound very good, there's no real appreciable difference. If man is depraved and dominated by sin so that his will is hopelessly corrupt and his will is not free, then the only solution is from God. And within their thinking, God chose it only to give the cure for sin to some and doesn't make it available to others. The result then is the same. So I'm going to ask you to consider some passages this morning. Uh, All of them are going to be dealing with matters of the will, but also some will be Uh, simply uh, to provide a a different way of looking at things. Because I know that uh, depending on what college you're going to, what seminary you're going to, what workplace is, whose books you're reading, who you're listening to, you may hear a whole lot of this. And you may not hear much from the other side. So this morning, I'm going to give you a little from the other side. I want you to consider, first of all, a a passage from Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 20. And uh, Jeremiah said, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Now, that's uh, been a subject of a lot of messages, and I've I've preached on it quite a bit myself. myself. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt, I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? So whatever the condition was, and I think we all know what that condition was that had them saying we're not saved, there was a solution available to that. There's a balm in Gilead administered by the great physician that would have provided a solution for their condition. And yet, they had refused it. 
The balm was there. It was available. The physician was there. (laughs) They didn't take it. I wouldn't have much use for a physician who had a cure available that could cure everybody who took it. Add to it that there would be no shortage for this medicine, this balm, this healing power that could heal anybody. There's no shortage, no supply. Never going to find an OOS beside it, out of stock. The supply is unlimited. What about the cost? The cost had been paid in full. No cost. I'm not going to tell you it's free because it cost somebody a lot. But the cost has been paid, paid in full. The supply of this marvelous healing remedy is available to all. There's plenty of it. But then... The physician would say, but some of you can't have it. I'm not going to make it available to you. Can we imagine a physician who would have a remedy that would cure everybody who came? And that remedy then is free. It goes to them free. They don't have to pay anything for it. But the physician would say, I'll give it to you but not you. Does that sound like our God? Reformed thinking would tell us, and they're not bashful about it, that that is our God. But that's not what is presented for us in Jeremiah chapter 8. They were lost. And there was a sense of astonishment. Why are you lost? When the balm is in Gilead and the great physician is there, why would you reject it? John chapter 3, another passage of scripture. Jesus dealt with a man named Nicodemus and gave him some profound truth. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He went on to say, marvel not, Nicodemus, that I say to you, you must be born again. There's a fleshly birth, and there is a spiritual birth. Nicodemus was struggling to understand exactly what all that meant. And so Jesus gave him an example. Actually, he gave him several. I don't have time to talk about all of those this morning, but I do have time to talk about that one great one that he gave him in verse 14. They were all great, but 
He said in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so Jesus took himself and compared himself to that time in the Old Testament book of Numbers when Moses put up a brazen serpent before the children of Israel and called upon them when they were bitten by a serpent to look, and when they looked, they lived. And just so you'd understand, I'm, I'm not just dreaming this up. Verse 7 of Numbers 21, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Let me pause there and say, God did not take the serpents away. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And drawing the comparison between himself and what Moses did to himself and that bronze serpent lifted up so long ago, Jesus stated very clearly that those who looked at the serpent looked in faith. The very essence of what they were doing when they looked at the serpent was they looked in faith. And Jesus compared that to himself even so then, must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him, whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God has given His only begotten Son. That's the very next verse that Jesus quoted. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes, whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is not the only time that Jesus said this. He said it again in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, He was visited by a group of Gentiles, Greeks who wanted to meet with Him. Jesus responded with this in verse 23 of John chapter 12. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. The passage goes on to tell us that as Jesus considered his death, his soul was troubled. And he, in fact, told God that. He said, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? And he said, glorify thy name. And to give us an idea of what a significant moment that was, this was one of the times when God himself spoke from heaven. To respond to this prayer of Jesus when he said, Father, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Glorify thy name. And God said, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. Jesus was quick to point out that this voice did not speak, though, for his benefit. <laughs> he knew that God was going to be glorified. But it was for yours and by implication for ours that God spoke up from heaven, audibly from heaven. 
and said, I'm about to glorify my name again. How would he do this? Well, Jesus goes on in John 12, 31 and tells us, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said signifying what death he should die. Just like in John 3. Jesus spoke of being lifted up. Here making it absolutely clear. John's commentary that he adds from his perspective at the end of the first century. Reminded us that Jesus was speaking of his death by crucifixion. Whereby he was lifted up. Whereby he was put upon the cross. And suspended between heaven and earth. When he was lifted up from the cross. He would draw all men to himself. Now the story in John 12 continues in verse 34. Uh, the people have answered him saying, We've heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While you have light, believe in the light. That you may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed and then did hide himself from them. No wonder Jesus had said in John chapter 5 and verse 39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. You may have lied. John then would end his gospel with this statement. John chapter 20 and verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. Over and over and over again we see in these passages. These are some magnificent examples of, from the life and teaching of Jesus Christ himself. And the words, whosoever, whoever, whoever believes are found over and over and over again. Moses didn't have a shroud to put over the brazen serpent in the wilderness. He didn't veil it behind curtains so some could see and some couldn't see. Instead, that brazen serpent was put up over the whole congregation, vast as it was. And while the serpents were in their bed and in their kitchens and their clothes and their bassinets, when the serpents were all around them and biting them and the bite meant certain death. Yet the simple message went forth. Look and live. Look and live. And Jesus said, that's what is happening right now. On a much greater scale. Because those that looked and lived in the wilderness, many of them would die in the wilderness. This was not about just physical life. It was about eternal life.
Look to me, Jesus said, and live. Whosoever believes on me should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, the Reformed folks love to accuse us of believing that we're saved by works. To them, saying to somebody, look and live, or believing on Jesus is a way of teaching works for salvation. But Paul very clearly stated that that was not true in Romans chapter 4, when he said, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. He has already established uh, that salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. But he goes on in Romans 4 and 5 then, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And thereby establishing very clearly that believing is not a work. It is the antithesis of work, the exact opposite of work. So that you can try to work for your own salvation by some way, and that is going to fail. Or you can believe, (laughs) and those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will not be cast out. How do I know that? Uh, Romans 10, 9 tells us that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, where? In your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. This is why I bring this message today about the human heart and why I've spent some time hoping to, in some small way, establish, at least get you to thinking, uh, that yes, God did create us with the ability to make a choice. Reformed folks have a hard time in the Garden of Eden. See, we don't have a sin nature to blame Adam and Eve's choice on. We can't say that they were just depraved. They were sinful slaves to sin. They weren't. They weren't. And yet they chose to sin. Now, I don't have any problem with that. Uh, because I believe that we must keep our heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. I I believe the heart is the center of the human will, that God created us with a choice to be made, and, and obviously he did that with Adam and Eve, and it's a very simple thing to me. I don't have to try to figure out where their sin came from. I know where it came from. It came from their own choice. That's fine with me. God created even the angels with the ability to, cho- to choose. Now, angels are not redeemable. And the Bible does not explain that to us. They were not included in the redemptive purpose of God. So from what I can see in Scripture, once the angels made their choice, they were sealed in that condition. And the angels who rebelled are sealed in that condition, awaiting their time of judgment. There's no redemption for those fallen angels. But yes, even the angels 
had to make a choice. Where did their choice come from? I don't struggle to answer that question. God made them with the ability to choose. Solomon then said long ago to guard or to keep our heart because out of it are the issues of life. And next week we're going to return to this passage and we're going to talk more about how our hearts, now that we are saved, once we are saved, continue to make decisions and choices that determine the direction of our lives and how that plays out for us. And there's a Certainly no shortage of material to cover. Uh, The Bible speaks of the human heart over 700 times, mostly, as the repository of the will. But today we begin here. There's no ambiguity in Romans chapter 10. With the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then we have that glorious Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All of us, you see, have been bitten by the serpent of sin. All of us have. And the sure result of that bite is eternity in a place the Bible called hell. But the cure is available. God has provided for us because of his love for us. And it was paid for by Jesus Christ. And it is offered to whoever believes on him. But I remind you today of the words of Jesus who said, You believe while you have the light. Jesus said, the light is with you. And what a glorious privilege it was for those people to listen to the sinless Savior, the Son of God. The light is with you. Believe while you have the light, because if you don't, the darkness of sin would overcome you. And to the point that you may not ever see the light at all. John began his great gospel by telling us that this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world and that men love darkness rather than light because his deeds were evil. He also told us that in him was life. That's Jesus Christ. And this life was the light of men. He also told us that he lights every man who comes into the world. But it is possible for people, and it does happen, to reject that light of revelation, whatever it is that God has given them. And when you reject that light, the darkness deepens and deepens and deepens. That's why the Bible warns us. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden what? Your hearts, right? Do not harden your hearts. I wonder today, have you received that glorious offer of salvation through Jesus Christ?
It tells us very plainly that as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Have you received him by faith? Have you looked at Jesus, lifted up with the look of faith, and know that he died on the cross for your sins? Have you followed him in baptism, making that profession of your faith publicly in Jesus Christ? And what do we profess in baptism? His death, burial, and resurrection, and our identification with it. Have you made that step? Are you part of his church? Why is that important? Well, it's just his body. That's all. We remember that's where we become a part, an active, growing, functioning part of his functioning body in this world today, which is a local New Testament church. Oh, if you have a decision to make for Christ this morning, as we stand together, I pray that you'll respond.